I'll tell you what it is. It's the shaking of Hebrews 12. When God said, I'm going to shake everything that can be shaken so that which cannot be shaken will remain. That's what's happening in our world right now. God is shaking the foundation of nations. If you just take your eyes off the political realm and take your eyes off the weather forecast and take your eyes off the economy and you would peer into the Spirit, I'll tell you what you'd see. You'd see the hand of God shaking the foundation of nations. You know why? Because there's one thing on earth that cannot be shaken. It's called the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when the economy is collapsing and when war is breaking out and when rumors are swirling and when questions are overwhelming, there is a reality that cannot be altered. Questions in the chaos. Welcome to the Hacker Podcast. My name is Greg Hackathorne. I hope you all are doing well. well. That preaching you just heard was from Dan McLeod, and we are so blessed to have him on the show today. He and his wife helped plant one church in Halifax, Nova Scotia, straight out of Bible college. And after serving there for 10 years, they went off to Latvia, where they served as AIM workers over there for the last nearly two years. And he is currently evangelizing all across North America, Canada, and the United States, and and he has traveled around the world ministering the gospel. I've been wanting to get him on the podcast for a while, but I felt compelled to reach out to him after listening to a sermon he preached recently at CCC in Fredericton, New Brunswick. And I wanted to talk to him about it on the show, along with, you know, what God has done in his life and, and sharing his story. But before we get to the conversation, we have a five-star review that I would like to share with you. The review says, An excellent listen, insightful and very well-directed conversations that give a look into the lives and minds of apostolic Pentecostals around Australia and beyond. Always encouraged hearing the stories and experiences that the guests share. Definitely worth taking the time to listen if you haven't already. Thank you, Chris, for leaving that great review and for listening to the show. We're grateful for anyone who takes the time to review. And we've made it a little easier to rate and review the show. Just follow the link pinned at the top of the Facebook page, the Hacka Facebook page. Or you can click the link in our Instagram bio. That, that's a link tree link. And, and one of the options there is to review the podcast. So for those of you have, who have been wanting to and just can't figure out how to do it you can follow those links and it will help you rate and review the show where you listen to it we continue to try and make the podcast better and better and it's pretty amazing i was thinking back on the last four guests that we've had and we've had guests from all over the world we've had an american we had someone from singapore a pastor in singapore we had new zealanders last week and this week we have someone from Canada, and that that actually corresponds with the four countries that listen to this show the most outside of Australia. So pretty amazing to have people from all over the world on the podcast talking about what God is doing in their countries and through their ministries. So we're continuing to try and make the podcast better. Last week, we experimented with a bit of video on the Hack of Convo with my brother and I, and you can check that out on our YouTube channel. And encourage you to subscribe to it as we will be adding more and more video content moving forward we want to get to a stage where 
all the episodes are in audio and video. We're going to always have audio, so we're going to try and mix in the video over time. So stay tuned for that, along with other changes we're going to be making to try and make the podcast better. Now that we have taken care of all of that, let's get to my conversation with Dan McLeod. Well, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. It's my honor to be on here with you. I can't remember when we first met. I think it was, it would have been your, probably your first trip to Australia. Was that 2009 or 2010? I was trying to think about that earlier today. That was April of 2009. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you came for the, it was the National Youth Conference, I believe, that you came down for. Yes, sir. And then we came back in 2012, uh, attended Turning Point, and then ministered around the country a little bit. Yeah, I, I had a vague memory of that, and I knew you. I knew I'd seen you twice in person. You know, obviously, I've been following you online for a number of years. You and your wife, and and what you guys have, have been up to. And when I started the podcast last year, uh, I made like a bit of a mental list of the guests I wanted to have on, and your name was on the list because I've always uh, admired, you know, what God has done in your life, and would love for you to be able to share a bit of that with. Uh, the listeners of the podcast. So we like to start off these conversations by getting to know the guest a little bit. So for my listeners who, who don't know you, if you wouldn't mind sharing a bit of your background, you know, sort of where you're coming from and, and that sort of thing. Yes, sir. Well, I was born and raised in Eastern Canada. I grew up in a small town called Woodstock in the province of New Brunswick. Remained there through uh, my childhood and teenage years and left uh, when I was 17 after graduation to go to university. I was raised uh, in church or around church, I should say. Everything that, that we do and preach was not foreign to me in terms of being familiar with it. Everything from our doctrine, our lifestyle and our worship, uh, it wasn't foreign to me, but neither was it personal to me. And so I had been baptized when I was 12 years old. We had a pastor for a season who took a lot of interest in younger people. And I saw the fruit of that in my life after his departure. Through my teenage years, I kind of fell wayward. But it was at the conclusion of my first year of university. Uh, I was taking an arts degree with aspirations of being a lawyer one day. At the conclusion of that first year of university, I received the Holy Ghost at a district youth convention. And uh, I haven't looked back since. That was in May of 2007. And so, you know, people often talk about having a, a life-changing experience. So for me, it, it literally was. I mean, it changed. It changed who I was. It changed my direction. And uh, it was only a couple weeks after receiving the Holy Ghost, the Lord started to speak to me through dreams about pursuing ministry. And I had gone to my pastor at the time and told him what I was feeling. And I had a list of of reasons why I felt like, you know, this was an obstacle. Obviously it was a good thing, but all these challenges and he just encouraged me to, you know, to forsake these challenges and forsake the life I was, I was pursuing and, and chase after the things of God and encouraged me to attend Bible school. And so that September, only a, a few short months after receiving the Holy ghost, I attended Bible school, spent the next three months there, uh, sorry, three years there. And after graduation in 2010, I uh, jumped into ministry, and this has been our life ever since. Wow, that's an amazing story. And 
I could kind of, uh, I get that sort of lawyer vibe. If you were to go in that direction, <laughs> I definitely get that from you. It makes sense that uh, you would have been pursuing that. Yeah, I, uh, the thought of it still excites me that I couldn't trade what I'm doing now, but you're not the first person to say that. I take that <laughs> as a compliment. <laughs> yeah, of course you should. Uh, so when I first met you, that would have been towards the end of your, your college days. Cause you said you graduated in 2010 mm -hmm. and I believe you had already in your heart that you, you and your wife were going to go to Halifax in Nova Scotia to plant a church. We were, it was in February of 2009, the Lord spoke to me about going to Halifax. And so when I took that trip to Australia in April of 2009, and that was pretty fresh in our spirit. Mm. I mean, we had at that time purposed in our heart, this is where we would go, but I still had one year left of um, my degree before we would actually be able to move to the city. And so it was pretty fresh on that first trip. And then uh, that second trip to Australia in 2012, at that point in time, we had lived in the city for about two years, uh, but we were only about a little over 12 or 16 months, I guess, uh, into weekly services. Hmm. And so uh, the church, even at that point, was really still in its infancy phase. So that church in Halifax is called One Church. And I believe I was one yes. of the, I had to have been one of the first followers to that Instagram account when you guys first got that started. It's been, it's been awesome watching the church grow over the years. Would you mind briefly uh, sharing your story of planning a church in Canada? Yes, sir. Well, when the Lord spoke to me in February of 09, I had gone to, uh, you know, one of my best friends who was the youth pastor for Brother Woodward in Fredericton, Justin McKenzie. And I shared with him what I was feeling. And he is originally from Nova Scotia. And I didn't know this at the time, but uh, he had actually been talking to his pastor, Brother Woodward, making plans to go back to Nova Scotia to start a church. Oh, wow. And so not, not knowing this, the Lord starts dealing with me. And I come visit him at the church on a Friday afternoon and share with him what I'm feeling. Well, you know, looking back, we know now, obviously, that was the Lord orchestrating some things. And in conversation, uh, he asked me one day, what are you going to do when uh, you finish Bible school next year? I said, well, you know, we don't really have plans at this point. We'll probably just go back to Woodstock or, and I'll never forget. We're driving down the road. He looks at me and says, do you want to go to Halifax and start a church? And I mean, at that point, I didn't have to pray. The Lord had already dealt with me about the city. I mean, it was just, let's do this. And uh, Brother Woodward and my pastor at the time, Brother Sully, released us and supported us. They were very encouraging. And so uh, we went as a team. Justin and his wife, Grace, were the lead pastors. And Haley and I served uh, with them. And we spent the next decade there. It started with uh, the four of us in my living room having Bible studies and prayer meetings and really had no idea what we were doing, but we just, <laughs> when we, we were determined and we learned as we went. Uh, but the four of us in a living room, uh, that was in where we started February of 2011, we hmm. launched our first weekly services and it, it took, it took several months of, of uh, discipline and, and just being relentless, refusing to quit. But by September of that year, uh, we started to see some traction with people. And in our Sunday services, we would have, you know, 10 to 12, typically mm -hmm. at that point. And it was September of 2011. 
I preached a message one Sunday morning on baptism. And I mean, you could feel the conviction in the room when I finished. And these people are brand new to Pentecost. They don't know how to respond like we do. They don't know our culture. And I mean, it was so like thick in the room. I just said, well, I don't, I don't know how to end this service than, than to tell you that like, if you're here today, and you want to serve God and you haven't been baptized. You need to be. Yeah. And man, I'll never, for, I'll never forget it. An Australian girl, actually, she jumped up and with her accent, she said, I'm ready. I want to be baptized. That's amazing. And as soon as she said that, there was uh, two people after her that stood up and said, I want to be baptized. So that Sunday night, we baptized our first three people. Wow. And man, it, it was a journey. Obviously, I, I transitioned out of there in uh, December of 2019 before we went overseas. But uh, by the grace of God and you know the leadership of Pastor Justin and many great people God sent us, uh, it went from the four of us in our living room in 2011 till uh, uh, when I left in 2019 and, and still today they're trending upwards, but we were averaging about 140 to 150 people on a Sunday. Wow. That is uh, so, just good. so, so many amazing stories and testimonies yeah. and the Lord gave us a, a miracle million dollar building. Uh, many, you know, people filled with the Holy ghost baptized and, it's just, it was a, a remarkable journey. And I shared everywhere I go, you know, I owe a, a great debt of gratitude uh, to Pastor Jay and so much of who I am as a person and who I am as a minister. Uh, to me, that, that decade of my life, uh, really God used him and that experience to help form me to the person I am today. And it was just amazing. I know it's not the only thing we're going to talk about today, so <laughs> I need to move on because if I start telling stories, we could be here for a while. Yeah, I think you go into a bit more detail. I, I heard you on, uh, was it the missions table? I think you go into a little bit more detail. Yes. So if you guys want to hear a little bit more of that story, feel free to pop over to the missions table podcast and, and find uh, Brother Dan McLeod's episode on there. But before we move along, what advice would you give to someone who is feeling the call to step out and start a work specifically, not just uh, into ministry, but to actually start a work, whether that be a church, a preaching point, or a small group? Mm -hmm. One thing I would say, I think as an individual, you have to be completely sold out to the kingdom of God. And that requires sacrifice. And I've watched the culture around church planning shift a lot. You know, uh, 10, 12 years ago, the team concept wasn't as accepted as it is now. And the idea of raising a large budget before going to start a church was not practice. And yeah. I celebrate the successes. You know, I think these, these paradigm shifts around church planning are positive as long as we also are honest about the potential uh, realities that they can cause. And this is just my personal opinion. My observation is, I look at, at what sacrifice put in the culture of our church, mm. and I certainly don't intend to judge uh, you know, anybody's sacrifice. That's not my intention, but when I look at the, the culture of church plants now, I sometimes just think, man, like while I rejoice at the blessing they're able to start with, I hope to God that they don't ever miss the opportunity uh, to really experience the the hard work of digging it out and the sacrifice, because I think what that contributes to the spiritual atmosphere 
It can't be calculated. Mm-hmm. So I would say as an individual, uh, you have to be willing to sacrifice. For me, in my story, in my context, that meant turning down really good job opportunities mm-hmm. and working two and sometimes three minimum wage jobs for almost a decade to make sure that ministry, uh, the church, and ultimately the kingdom was receiving my greatest investment. And so on an individual level, I would say that uh, on a kind of broader leadership level or an approach to planning something, you know, I I would speak from the perspective saying, you know, there's some things that we did well and some things you just, you learn. And after a decade and ministry transitions, you look back and you reevaluate as an individual. And I would say, uh, focus on the development of people, Mm -hmm. which certainly is cliche because we know that's what Jesus did. But many times I think there's a pressure in church planning or in starting a work in general where we're, we seek to amass a crowd. We're looking mm. for a gathering of people. And the problem becomes is we draw a crowd that's larger than our ability to disciple. Yeah. And so I would say, don't allow yourself to give into the temptation of just drawing a crowd, but focus on the individual and develop people. Don't get distracted on a building. Uh, don't put all your stock into a Sunday service, but have a shallow end of the pool where people can jump in, but don't ever hide the fact that there is a deep end. Right. So make room for new people, but don't hide the fact you're apostolic. Expose them to apostolic ministry from day one. Let them see apostolic worship. Let them see uh, you know, the, the passion of Pentecostal praise. Let them hear people speaking in tongues. Let them see the gifts of the spirit be in operation, but make sure there's a shallow end. So they're not totally freaked out, love them, explain it to them, but don't hide it from them and play the long game. You know, don't judge your success in the short game. You know, just because you have a a bad turn or a bad Sunday or a bad quarter, you're playing the long game. And I'll never forget uh, brother Woodward saying to us when we moved to the city, he said, most people, overestimate what they can do in two years and underestimate what they can do in 10 years. And mm. that's the truth. Yeah. Uh, and pastor Jay and I, we thought, we thought we'd be running a hundred in two years and we weren't anywhere close to that, not anywhere close to that. Uh, but, but at the end of a decade, when I look back, pastor Jay and I were just texting the other day, you know, reminiscing over some stories. You know, when I reflect on that decade, I just absolutely stand amazed at what God did. So play the long game. Yeah, that's that's tremendous advice. I, I love that you highlighted the fact that uh, when you are starting these church plants, when you are starting these preaching points or even a small group, that you don't hide the apostolic nature of the church. You know, we're planting an mm-hmm. apostolic church. We're starting an, an apostolic work. And so, yeah, I, I believe it's it's so important to make sure that 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 isn't lost in the fact that you want to have this shallow end where people are entering in, where they're developing, but you don't want it hidden off in the back. It's like, hey, you know, maybe in five years we can introduce them mm-hmm. to apostolic, you know, doctrine, apostolic worship. It has to be from the beginning. And and I guess that ties into what you were saying about discipleship, focusing on discipleship rather than gathering a crowd. It's really good. Mm-hmm. So you... you Touched on it a little bit when you said that there was a, a transition in, in your ministry and with your family at the end of 2019, and, and you guys left Halifax to become Amherst to Latvia. And obviously that is really stepping out by faith. You, you stepped out by faith 
to go to uh, Nova Scotia to Halifax to start the church. And then now you're, you're leaving the country, you're going overseas, you're going to Latvia, Eastern Europe, even, which, you know, is not the easiest place to go. Uh, all you have to do is look at our success in Europe and with the UPCI and, and even Eastern Europe, I guess it's been even harder to start churches there. It's on the doorstep mm. of Russia. What was that like? What was your time over there like? Uh, it was unique, uh, largely because of COVID. Uh, jumping mm -hmm. into it, a lot of our expectations were altered by the severe restrictions. Yeah, uh, we arrived and we're fortunate for the first two to three months, we were able to get settled. And there was very little restrictions. But then we went into about an eight month period, where everything was shut down, no gatherings, stores were closed. So that was difficult. It made for a very long winter. It was challenging as an individual, it was challenging as a family, uh, but we were fortunate by late spring into the summer of 2021, the restrictions did loosen enough. We were able to travel. Our first trip was in May uh, to Barcelona to be with the Herods. And then for the remainder of the summer, uh, we were able to travel pretty consistently, which a large part of our responsibility uh, or assignment, I should say, while well, well, serving there was not in Latvia itself. Okay. That served it as a base for us. And we traveled, you know, from Latvia into different okay. countries and regions through Europe. And so COVID made it a challenge, you know, uh, in a ministry context and even as a family. But I think as with anything, you simply have to try to find the positives and focus there. For us as a family, it afforded us time together in a way and in a volume that realistically we'll probably never have again. Hmm. You know, the likelihood of another pandemic like this where you're locked down your house for months on end is pretty small. And so, well, yes, it's frustrating. You have to choose to focus on the positives and just adjust and, and deal with that. But on a ministry context, uh, while it was challenging, it was also it was also very rewarding to me. One of the amazing things about global ministry and certainly when you enter environments or cultures that are very different than Western culture, I would say is just the simplicity of life and ministry. And so when I say this, uh, there's a lot of places in Asia that would be like this, places in the Pacific, even Africa, South America, Eastern Europe, uh, really you can find pockets of it. Most places, North America would be an exception. Western Europe, and then there are spots in Asia that probably are not like this, but there's just a simplicity in some of these cultures where life is simple, people aren't as materialistic, uh, they're more family-oriented, or they move about life with a slower pace, mm -hmm. they're taking in conversations, they're taking in, you know, it's like every little thing is an experience to them, mm. and their their mind and their spirit is not uh, convoluted with stuff. And so, well, their life is like this. The reality is, is that also affects their faith in the church. Yeah. And for me, what it really, what it really opened my eyes to was how, how much of our, our, our life of faith in our church culture in the West, by the West, I mean, in North America, uh, is really dependent upon entertainment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we, and not that that's wrong, 
but we can get out of balance. Mm-hmm. And so much of our church culture is built and infused with entertainment that in our culture, the absence of it is equal to a disinterest in faith altogether. Because, you know, we equate that to be equal or on par or the absence of that entertainment, people are not engaged. Where you mm-hmm. go to some of these other cultures, there's no element of entertainment. I mean, the faith is so simple. That's why you can get up and just say, you will be healed today and there will be miracles because faith to them is so simple. Uh, I remember just after a few months of being in Eastern Europe, being in a text thread uh, with some minister friends of mine in America, and they were bouncing around different messages they had heard recently or thoughts they had preached or were thinking about. And it was so unique to me because in the American context, all of these things uh, were like catchy sermon titles or unique thoughts that are it's a play on words. And here's the reality is most of that will not translate to probably 75% of the world. Yeah. And so when you're, when you're introduced to that other context, you realize, wow, I don't need all this to be a successful or effective minister because in North America, there's a pressure, especially on young ministers that to be a good preacher or an effective minister or a good communicator, you've got to have all this stuff. Yeah. And again, I'm not advocating we do away with it, but I would like to challenge the paradigm and say perhaps we're a little bit out of balance because if we are needing our the experience of, of our faith and this encounter with God to be infused with entertainment in order to be truly engaging, we've missed it. Yeah. Because God God is engaging enough all by himself. Hmm. And so to me, that was one of the biggest and most rewarding things about, you know, ministering in a global context was just the simplicity of life, the simplicity of faith, and how that challenged the paradigm that, that had really built my ministry for the last decade. Yeah. Has it been a bit strange? Because right now you guys are back in North America in the United States and Canada. Has it been a bit strange being home and, and preaching out as you have been? It, it has a little bit. I mean... And I have to constantly remind myself because I was telling somebody recently, whether we admit it or not, we all have ego Hmm. and we all, we all like the, the glory of being told we're a good preacher or that was a great message. And, and there's that pressure, that subtle pressure in that, if I could say it, American church culture to adapt to that kind of expected norm for the sake of of gratification and and honor and glory and i'm just being real me as a person i have to constantly remind myself that where the context god took me to on the other side of the world was to teach me some things and now that i'm being reintroduced to this other environment i can't surrender the lesson and the truth that i learned just because this is the cultural norm right and again i'm not saying do away with it you know, I think these things can be great elements. I mean, if anybody is creative, God is creative. Mm. I mean, look at the colors and the beauty of creation. There's certainly nothing wrong with this, but but we do need to check our motive. We do need to evaluate to make sure we're not becoming more dependent upon these uh, entertaining or cultural elements than we are the supernatural things of God. Uh, there's just no substitute for the supernatural. It's so true. And well said, you know, to appeal to our culture, we do have to have that creative aspect to it, but we can't go so overboard that that a simple message that is sharing apostolic doctrine or is sharing 
you know, a, a simple truth that we need to follow and are not following, we, we can't get so wrapped up in entertainment that we don't accept that. It's like, oh, you know, he's telling me to pray. <laughs> I know mm-hmm. to pray. Yep. Yeah, are you praying? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And you preached at CCC recently, and we're going to talk about, uh, that was one of the main reasons I wanted you on the podcast now because of a message you preached there, but the Sunday night sermon you preached was just about having a walk with God. And I thought that was, that was brilliant, you know, listening to that and the simplicity of it, but also the, the life altering aspect of it. If you take on board what is preached and you actually live out, you know, the message preached, are you all planning to return as missionaries? So you're traveling around right now, I guess a a bit of an evangelist, but are you planning on going Mm -hmm. back to the field? Uh, at this point, we are not planning on going back overseas uh, full time. We are working to maintain uh, a portion or an element of support. Uh, we've worked with people in global missions you know, extensively over the past couple of years and have been invited to continue to participate in certain projects in addition to you know, those missionaries that we have strong personal connections with. And so at this point, we're not going back uh, full time. We're actually in the process of transitioning stateside and we'll be relocating to Terre Haute, Indiana, basing out a new life fellowship with Jeff Harpole. Uh, but Lord willing, though, I probably won't uh, aim for this this year, just because the elements of transition and the focus on our family. Uh, but from 2023 onward, it's our goal to try to do four to six international trips a year. And so while we won't live overseas, we do have uh, very much a strong intention and I would go so far as to say a calling from God to maintain our involvement globally. Yeah, that's awesome. And that's a wonderful church, Brother Harpel's church there in Terre Haute. I, I actually went to his father's church in Troy, Missouri, way back in the day, um, mm-hmm. Jeff Harpel's dad. So yeah, a wonderful man of God. And Yes, be... sir. They're, they're dynamic people. Mm, yeah. Well, Let's get to why we wanted to have you on. I know I enjoyed all of that. And, and uh, if we were doing something else, we would have just spent most of the time just talking to you about life and, and what, what God is doing through you all. But I wanted to have you on specifically to talk about this sermon you preached at CCC in Fredericton, uh, New, New Brunswick. So at the beginning of this podcast, I would have played a clip and uh, you would have heard a, a little portion of this message. And if you want to hear the full sermon, I encourage you to go on CCC's YouTube or get the podcast. Make sure I'll, I'll link it in the show notes. So you just go there and you can listen to the full sermon. We're just going to talk about it, uh, but there's a difference between talking about something and, and, and the priest word. So I do encourage you guys to, to listen to the actual sermon. But uh, I felt compelled because I wanted to talk to you about this message and some of the things that you addressed in it. You, you preached out of the book of Job and you entitled mm-hmm. your thoughts, questions in the chaos. If you wouldn't mind just giving us a, a brief overview of your introduction and the background of this message before we dive into it and, and, and go through different aspects of the sermon. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some ways, I would say it, it kind of started two years ago, though the message thought itself uh, didn't really materialize until just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the reality of chaos, at least for me, goes back you know, two years, it was just after we transitioned out of Halifax that I had lined up about six months of travel to raise our budget to go overseas. And six weeks into that, March of 2020 is when COVID hits and shut everything down. 
And so I can go back to that point and, you know, I'm asking questions, God, how, how do we live if I don't travel? How do we raise a budget? And in the next 60 days, I saw the provision of Lord of the Lord in a distinctly supernatural way. I've never experienced anything like it in my life. But from that time until today, it just seems like there's been one global event after another that has contributed to this overwhelming chaos. And so in terms of this message in particular, uh, the recent events with Russia and Ukraine, you know, go back about a month now when the invasion of Ukraine was just happening. Uh, this was, you know, fresh on the, on the global media. Uh, obviously, I have good friends in the country of Ukraine. I was just in Kiev in November and ministered at our church there with Pastor Sergei. Mm. And so in that sense, when this began to happen, it felt like almost oddly personal to me. Now, I understand that it's not my country not my people, but I had a friend say this to me just uh, two weekends ago, actually. They said, and the individual who said this was actually born and raised in Ukraine, a pastor of the church there would be his sister. She said, I feel like somebody is stealing my memories. Hmm. And to me, that was so profound because it described my feelings. You know, I've been to this country multiple times. I was just there in November and when I see what's happening, it feels like they're intruding in my mental and emotional space and messing with this memory. And so now this chaos that's been, you know, wrecking havoc in lives for, for two years at this point, it takes on a new face in the form of a war, you know, the invasion of a sovereign country. It feels oddly personal to me. Uh, we had just come back to Canada, obviously, and I'm not sure if, if you're familiar with it, but I know it certainly made the news rounds here in North America, but the capital of Canada, uh, the city of Ottawa was in the midst of a, a trucker convoy. Yeah, we heard there about were it. Yeah. And so when the Lord began to speak this word to me, I was actually driving into the city of Ottawa to minister on the last Sunday in February. Wow. And as I'm driving into the city of Ottawa, I'm telling you, I, I could feel the chaos in the spirit. Mm. Like you could just, you could feel this infusion of, of anger and confusion and anxiety and uncertainty. It's just like swirling in the spirit and I could feel it. And as I'm driving down the road, it's Saturday afternoon, we're on the way to the hotel and I'm feeling this, I'm just meditating on the Lord. And you know, in my spirit, I'm asking God, like, you know, just these questions like, God, why? Like, what is going on? And I just felt the Lord, the Lord began to nudge me like, like he wanted to say something. And so I just, I mean, I'm not talking out loud. This is all in my spirit as I'm meditating on the Lord. And I could feel the, like the urgency of God that he wanted to talk. Mm. And he took my mind to Job chapter 38. And we're in his opening verses of that scripture where says out of the whirlwind god speaks and god starts asking job questions yeah and I, I mean to me my mind just i thought oh my goodness here we are in the chaos asking god all these questions and this is what job had done i mean mm -hmm. chaos had touched job's family job's health job's finances i mean his sense of security is gone his self-confidence is gone like chaos has rocked his world 
he's asking questions. His friends are asking questions. His wife's telling him to curse God yeah. and die. And at least four times in my study, I find in the book of Job that he's asking and even demanding of God to know why is this happening. Mm-hmm. And for 37, 37 chapters, God doesn't answer him. And when the Lord finally answers him in Job chapter 38, he answers him with a question. Mm. And man, that just hit my, that hit my heart when I realized if I'll stop asking questions long enough to let God speak, he has some questions for me too. Mm-hmm. And so, and that first thing he says to Job is just, I mean, he said, who is this that, <laughs> that darkeneth my counsel without knowledge? You know, that one translation says, uh, who is this that limiteth my counsel or, or comes into my courtroom and speaks as, as one with no knowledge? Oh, wow. I think it was the, the CEV or something, if my memory's correct, I saw when I was studying. It says, why are you talking so much? for someone with such little knowledge. And it just, to me, what I realized is all of these questions that are sown into my mind and my spirit as a result of chaos, they undermine the sovereignty of God. Yeah. And to me, that, that was a, that was the convicting reality. And so, well, we're, well, we're all well aware of the fact that we have questions in the chaos the deeper truth is that God has questions for us. Yeah, he does. And and you talk about how that chaos can often lead to deception. And, and I've seen this, you know, we, we've seen this time and time again with friends. Conspiracy theories have run rampant over the last two years. Mm-hmm. Um, deceptions, deception about, you know, leadership and and having a lower view of leaders because of, of what's going on. Can you touch on that a little bit? How How is it that chaos leads to disrupt? to deception yeah well i think we have to remind ourselves first that the spirit empowers us to have self-control not control Hmm. and so our responsibility is to control ourselves yeah not always to control circumstance but when circumstance is is presented to us and there's difficulty introduced to us by virtue of of sickness or the shaking economy and job loss or uh, death in the midst of a pandemic and all these elements of chaos, we have to remind ourselves that the spirit empowers us to have self-control, not Mm -hmm. to control. But all of us, we are all creatures of self-preservation. Nobody willingly inflicts pain or struggle upon themselves Nobody willingly walks into chaos. And so when we find ourselves in those environments, what happens is our tendency becomes to start asking questions. Well, mm-hmm. where is God? Yeah. If God can heal, why am I sick? If God's really in control, why is this happening? And to me, the reality of this danger is why in Matthew 24, when Jesus is talking about the signs of the times, before he talks about famines and pestilence and earthquakes and any of those what i would call chaotic circumstances he says uh you know make sure that you're not deceived Mm. no take heart that that you're not deceived well why does the warning of deception precede the reality of the signs it's because he's he's giving us insight here that when all of these signs start to materialize when the reality of these things begin to touch your life Remember, I've already warned you, 
don't be deceived. Why? Because these circumstances create a condition where your mind, your thoughts, your emotions begin to become manipulated by the environment you are in, and you will be prone to questions. And when you start asking questions, you're vulnerable to deception. That's, That's why at the onset of this, Jesus says, don't be deceived. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he exposes the danger before the circumstance. So you're not walking in blindly. When you start to see all these things happen, just remember, your responsibility is to operate in the self-control of the spirit, and that is to make sure you're not deceived. He didn't say that you can avoid earthquakes or famines or pestilence. No, you will experience it. Your responsibility is to make sure that you don't fall prey to the deception that comes through the questioning that that chaos introduces. Wow, that is so good. That is so good. Yeah, it, 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 the only thing that we can control is whether we allow ourselves to be deceived or not. And, and we have to understand that over the last few years, the enemy is, is using this, is, is using all of these doubts that doubts in authority, doubts in government, doubts even in mm-hmm. pastoral authority because of decisions that are being made and we can't allow that to, to take root in our heart. Does that factor into what you call the community of questioning? Because you dealt kind of with like the individual as a questioner, but then you also talk mm-hmm. about a community of questioning. What, what's that? Yeah, uh, I think one of the dangers, I would say this first with the question, especially when we look at the story of Job, God stays silent for so long. And that's because he's sovereign. Yeah. He, he feels, he feel, God doesn't feel any pressure to answer just because you don't have control of your life. Mm. He's God. He, he, he's sovereign. He's not bothered by this. Like he grieves at the pain and the loss of humanity, but he, the circumstances don't concern him. He's God. And so it's this reality of his sovereignty that we have to rest in. And to me, when God chooses not to answer the question, it's the absence of the answer that gives space for accusation. Hmm. So when there's questions being asked to Job and Job can't give an answer, now accusation starts flying against God and against Job. And so to me, the, the spirit behind the community of questioning and that comment, uh, and I'll be honest with you, my wife and I were talking today about getting ready to preach and my study process. And I said, Haley, there's a lot of the things that, that just come to me as I'm speaking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, very, I very much study the concept or the theme. And in terms of the, the delivery of that thought, it can vary each time because I really try to be dependent upon the spirit. Not just Job, but everybody around him's got a question. Well, Job, what's wrong with you? Doesn't God love you? If God really cared about you, he wouldn't do this, would he? You see, there's something about chaos that gives room for question. It starts in yourself, but the thing about questions is there's a little questioning community. Did you ever notice that? You start pondering things and you just dare one time, just one time to make that Facebook post. You just engage in that conversation just just one time. Lost my restraint and stepped in the water. And they feed on you like sharks in bloody water. Because there's something about question that draws a community of like-minded people. 
this was one such comment. I had not premeditated this, wasn't in any study notes. It just kind of came on the fly. And so in that case, when that happens, I'll often go back and, and think through this. And so with this, you know, my feeling with this community of questioning is I observed very early in the onset of COVID uh, what I would call keyboard warriors. <laughs> you know, everybody had an everybody had an opinion on Facebook. Yeah, of course. And man, it just like I would marvel when someone would share their opinion, and people would just jump on that Facebook <laughs> opinion like a shark in bloody water. Yeah. And it's like it, these weird allegiances and communities that are formed, but they it's not a safe place to have conversation. I mean, this is like sharks in bloody water. It's like war because the conversation is infused with anger and fear and depression and anxiety. And nobody has the answer. Well, what happens in that, that community of questioning is accusation starts flying accusation against you and ultimately accusation against God, you know, because if God was really in control, why is this happening? Right. If God could really, really heal, why did that person die? If God was really a provider, why did they lose their job? And so the spirit behind those questions, and I think it's important to say, asking a question is not wrong. When the angel pronounces the the, the reality of the virgin birth to Mary, Mary asks the question, and there's no consequence. Right. He simply says, How's this going to happen? It's her question. The angel says, the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. But when Zacharias receives a similar promise for his wife, and he asks a question, the Lord makes him mute. Hmm. Because he's so, he's so intent on his will coming to pass in their lives, he's not going to let unbelief talk him out of it. Yeah. And so asking a question is not wrong, but the spirit or the motive behind it uh, is, to me, the most important matter. And that questioning community, in my experience, uh, it exists with corrupt motives. Yeah, it doesn't exist sure. to it doesn't exist to discover God. It doesn't exist to strengthen the body of faith. It's fueled by anger and fear and frustration. And ultimately, what it's doing is it's it's tearing down people. It's sowing seeds of distrust, seeds of division, and it just. It, here we are two years into it and it hasn't changed. <laughs> yeah, it's like, right. and to me, that questioning community, it's just not a safe place. No, it's not. Uh, we yeah. do need to have, we, we do need to have open dialogue. You do need to have communities of people that you can go to and have safe, uh, honest dialogue, even if it's different opinions, but man, you need to make sure the motive is pure because a yeah. lot of those things are, they're just, it's communities built on distrust and division. And especially when we're talking about things like Facebook and news. I mean, I have Facebook. I'm not, I'm not that against it that I don't have it, but you do need to understand these are not neutral platforms. Mm-hmm. You know, these are corporations with, uh, with, with margins and profits and goals that are based on profits and they have political agendas. And that's just the reality of it. I'm not saying don't use it, but you do need to understand the avenue or the environment you use your voice matters because you're not, you're not going to win or be effective in a place where the narrative is controlled. And so uh, I guess less, less Facebook conversation (laughs) and more people, more people conversation in the spirit of love and trust. Yeah. That's what I was just going to say. 
if you are going to have that honest conversation, try to have it in person where you can see the other person's face, where you can look at the facial expression. And, and we lost so much of that over the last couple of years where it was like, oh, we can handle it all online. It's like, well, there's some things that you really can't talk through online, especially if there's a disagreement. Uh, people are going to take each other the wrong way. Simple comments taken out of context. People will attack you uh, through a computer and, and they mm -hmm. won't do it in person. And yeah, I love that point that you make about questioning or, or having a, a question without faith. Uh, there's a, a difference between asking God a question or even having a bit of doubt. You could have a bit of doubt and bring that doubt to the Lord in prayer. Uh, bring that, right. cast your cares on him, come before him. Um, but if you have a questioning spirit where no answer he gives you, no word from the man or woman of God is sufficient for, for this question that you have, that's where you, you can really find yourself in danger. Exactly. For 37 chapters, God is silent. But then the Bible said the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, literally the storm. What? This doesn't make sense. Wouldn't God transport me to a more peaceful environment, a more pleasant spiritual experience? But no, quite the contrary. God said, Job, I'm trying to teach you something that when I want to talk to you, I can talk to you in the middle of the whirlwind. Hear me today. The storm doesn't silence the voice of God. And if you turn your ear to the Spirit on this Sunday, here's what you'd find out. God is still speaking out of the whirlwind. I know the economy's uncertain. I know there's wars and rumors of war. But you know what? Out of the whirlwind comes the voice of God. And you know what he says? He says, Job, you're not the only one with questions. I've got some questions for you. So you continue on in the message and you, you, you lay out the questions that, that people have. And then, and you talked about it a little bit at the out, outset of your introduction here, but you talk about the questions that God has for us, that, that God has questions as well. Would you mind touching on that a little bit? The questions that God has for us in this, these questions that we have in chaos. Mm -hmm. If you started Job 38 and go through to Job 42, I can't remember if it's 70 or 72 different questions that God asked Job. You know, everything from, you know, where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? Do you know how deep the sea is? You know, can you feed the birds? Can you speak to lightning? And, you know, all these questions that basically expand Job's perspective beyond his present circumstance, causing them to consider the, the grandeur or the magnificence of creation. And I mean, the reality is the smallness of himself. Yeah. So ultimately, here's what God is showing him is I'm sovereign hmm. because those quest those questions are are causing or, or they're rooted in an unbelief in the sovereignty of God. And the danger there is and I talk about this in the message is, is truth is like a tapestry. Right. You know, when you consider the oneness of God or, or baptism in Jesus name or the infilling of the Holy Spirit evidenced by speaking in other tongues, living a holy life. All of these are truth, mm -hmm. but by themselves, they're not the fullness of truth, right? Jesus is the truth. And so 
to me, what happens when you start pulling one strand of that fullness of the tapestry of truth is it unravels everything else, not Mm. at once, not instantly, but that thread becomes loose. And over time, it gets looser and looser and looser. So to me, that something that seems so simple, like the sovereignty of God, when you start pulling that element of, of truth and that, that, that thread of the tapestry, what happens is your spiritual disciplines become effective because it's like, oh, you know, why go to church? God's not really in control or mm-hmm. why pray today? I mean, can God really change this situation? Mm-hmm. And you, you wouldn't think it, but it's, it's that pulling of that one thread. And I'm sure it's happened to you. It's happened to me where you see a loose thread on a, a piece of clothing and you start pulling it. And all of a sudden you feel a thread on the other side of your body, you know, pulling because I mean, they're all interweaved. Yeah. And so this is what happens. You would never think that in March of, of 2020 or in the summer of 2021, as you're questioning the sovereignty of God, because of global pandemic that in 2023, you know, you'd walk away from truth or, mm. you know, you would change your lifestyle convictions or, that in 2025, that, you know, you would never consider that because you're not looking at the long game. But the reality is, is when you pull that one thread, it affects every part of the garment. Yeah. And when so the good. Lord starts to ask those questions, he's causing Job to consider how small and limited his knowledge and his perspective really is. Yeah. Because it's that sovereignty of God. When you get a revelation of the sovereignty of God, I mean, fear has such little power over your mind and mm. your, your thought cycle and your emotion because you understand. In fact, uh, a good friend of mine has uh, friends with a, a Jewish man in Israel. And he was telling me just the other day in conversation with him, he said the word coincidence. And the Jewish man said, um, excuse me, what did you just say? He said, coincidence. He said, yes, I, I heard you, but what does that mean? And as he is explaining to him the concept or the meaning of the word coincidence, the Jewish man says, oh, we don't have a word for that in Hebrew. He said, Jews don't believe that anything happens by coincidence. Oh, wow. And bro, I got to be honest, to me, that kind of rocked my world. Because here's what we've done. By, By adopting the idea of a coincidence, we've basically created room in our worldview and in our personal lives for things to happen with the absence of God. Oh that, man. When we, wow. when we, that's when we say coincidence, that's what we're saying. This yeah. is happening in the absence of God where a Jew would say everything happens by the providence of God. There's mm. nothing that God is not in. And so to me, that's, that's the heart of what God is trying to show Job is Job. I'm so much bigger than you. I'm so much stronger than you. I'm so much wiser than you. And if you can just discover and understand the reality of my providence, you won't have questions anymore. Man, that is so good. Oh, I love that. That is so good. I'll be taking that one home with me. Man, that was that was worth the price of admission right there. That they don't even have a word for coincidence. And the actual the idea, because we invented this in, in the West, we invented this in our language, it has infiltrated our own view of God and and the control that Mm -hmm. he has over our lives. That is incredible. And, and that kind of leads to the next point I wanted to talk to you about how you, you, and and, and I I like how you sort of majored on this a little bit. You talked about how 
the abundance in the West, and again, you can have a view of this because you've been, you know, over in Eastern Europe for the for the last nearly two years, and and you could see how the abundance of the West can distort our view of God's presence, and also it can distort how they view the the blessings of God as well. And I guess mm-hmm. that kind of ties into this coincidence type type thing that we were just referring to. How, how do you? How so? Why do you? Why do you think that that affects it? Well, because Western culture has become so materialistic, what happened is we automatically equate stuff with the blessing of God, which I don't entirely deny that in some cases that's true. I absolutely believe that God desires and wants to. He delights in blessing his children. I believe that if we're good stewards, if if we're sacrificial givers, I have no problem with people being blessed. In fact, I think we should look for the blessings of God in our lives. But that doesn't mean that stuff is equal to the blessing of God. Mm. Because I could tell you, and I know of many personal examples, I could point at times in my past in pastoral ministry where stuff was anything but a blessing from God. I have seen uh, the truth that sometimes God does bless with stuff. God will bless you with with things, and those things are not always material, but sometimes that might be. But on the other hand, I've also seen when people get stuff, it becomes a burden, not a blessing. Yeah. In other words, their stuff their stuff pushes them from God or distances them from God. So in this case, this is not a blessing at all. I mean, mm-hmm. if your stuff if your stuff interferes with disciplines if your stuff interferes in your relationship with God, that's not a blessing. It's a burden. Mm. But in Western culture, we've become so materialistic that, that we would think the abundance of stuff is blessing and the absence of stuff is not. See, we've got a little, we've got a little problem in the Western church. So what happens is we begin to judge God based upon our Western idea perceiving that in our abundance of stuff God must be present and then on the contrary that in the loss of stuff God obviously must be absent when the reality is God is just who he is he doesn't change he fills all time and space nothing is hid from his presence God just is Well, when you go to Eastern Europe, or I was privileged to be in the nation of Kenya in November, I mean, again, these are very simple cultures. Uh, their faith is simple. Their lives are simple. And I had one uh, man outside Nairobi. He asked me, what is something you like about our country? And I said, I love the simplicity of it. You know, it's very refreshing to me that you people are so joyful. I mean, for us, the thought of of not having a hot shower or having a home with no shower or, or living in a mud hut with, you know, steel and paper wall. I, we just can't fathom that. Mm-hmm. I mean, to us, that would be devastating. And certainly I'm not saying that those conditions are the best either, but their ability to live in true joy in the midst of that, that reality. I'll be honest. I sometimes look at at the people in the West and wonder, could we do that? Mm. Like we're, we're frustrated if we have to wait in line 
for our, you know, seven or eight dollar coffee. Yeah. Or, you know, we're we're mad if at our at our restaurant where you pay 40 bucks a plate, you know, it's not cooked right or they get your side wrong. Like it, it, the scales are so different. Yeah. yeah. And so to me, we need to be careful because here's the reality is God just is. God is not more in stuff and less in nothing. We don't have more of God because we have stuff. And the people in Kenya don't have less of God because they have less stuff. Mm. God just is. And so, well, I think we do need to look for the blessing of God. We need to make sure it doesn't distort the reality of who he is or truth in the midst of it, because uh, we, we don't have more of God. We're not better Christians. We're not more spiritual. You know, God is not North American. And so if we're not careful to me, the danger of that is we become attached to stuff. And then we, we lose the reality that ultimately God has blessed us in this measure to be a blessing to the world, to be a blessing to the kingdom. Now, I got convicted here a little while ago reading through the New Testament again, just over the, like, the simplicity of practice in the New Testament church. Yeah. The church didn't leave it up to the government to take care of widows and orphans. And, mm. and to, I mean, I got convicted and I thought, you know what, I have been... I, I have been doing this for over a decade, and I don't know. Now, sure, I've given offerings to ministries, but I don't know that any time in my life until last year, I ever personally did something to minister to a widow, ever. Mm-hmm. And to me, I, I mean, the Lord made me very uncomfortable with that reality because all of these dynamics that we have delegated to the government, God actually said, that's, that's the church's role. Yeah, And so I just think we have to be careful uh, in the midst of, you know, living in our blessed life, because the reality is, is every single one of us in a Western culture is richer than probably 90 plus percent of people in the world. We just need to make sure that our blessing or our stuff does not give us any sense of superiority, but instead gives us the burden of responsibility. Yeah. And, and to remember that as you said, that the presence of God is not tied to the blessing. It's not tied to having or not having. And obviously we, we get a beautiful picture of that in the story of Job, where God was still in relationship with Job at the beginning. And then when he when he had so much stuff, and then when he mm-hmm. lost everything, God still loved Job. God was still involved in Job's life, even though he didn't answer him for a number of chapters. God uh, still right. loved Job. And... Mm-hmm. and it's important that we don't lose sight of that, that, that blessings are, are great, as you said, but that doesn't mean that that's a seal of approval from God. And again, I love that point that you made that blessings can sometimes take you away from what God really mm-hmm. wants you to do. I wanted to ask one more question before we, we wrap this up. And I, I've really enjoyed having you on and talking about this. Thank you again for, for taking the time. But why do we, and, and you touched on this, and I love how you talked about the book of Acts. You talked about the church in the book of Acts and how the, the Christians in the book of Acts were, were men and women of action. They were constantly going, mm-hmm. doing, so on and so forth. Why is it important that in 2022 that we be Christians of action and not reaction? I think if we're pursuing an apostolic model, looking back to the book of Acts, you know, 
as I said in the message you just referenced, it is the book of Acts or the book of actions, not the book of reaction. So this is what that tells me is that mission precedes chaos. Hmm. And so the mission was determined. The course was set. When the reality of chaos is introduced, yes, there will be times that you need to adjust. But the, the fact is the mission preceded the chaos. Yeah. And so when you set that, when you determine that reality, then you need to remind yourself that, okay, this chaos doesn't change my mission. My mission was already set. I was already supposed to be acting. Right. And in some cases, I read this, I don't recall uh, who, who shared it or where I read it, but early into the pandemic in 2020, I was reading uh, a post somewhere on a blog, and, and the statement was made that uh, crisis is an accelerator. Mm-hmm. And the point, the point was simply that whatever weakness this pandemic exposed in your life or your leadership or your church or your organization, that weakness already existed. And all that this crisis has done is cause you to see the reality of that sooner than you would have without the crisis. Right. And so to me, if the mission precedes this, the action precedes this, we should already be doing these things. But in many cases, what happens is the crisis comes, the chaos comes. And as a result of what we're not doing, then all of a sudden we're trying to react. For example, if every local church had a thriving house-to-house model like the early church did, mm-hmm. yes, we would have grieved over the frustrations of the larger gatherings that, that were uh, interrupted with the pandemic. But if every church prior to the pandemic already had a fully functioning house-to-house book of acts model in operation in some fashion Mm -hmm. it really would not have messed with our structure or our ministry to the degree it did but the reality is is most of us don't and many didn't have any sort of virtual presence yeah so now what happens is Many people are scrambling, trying to figure out, well, uh, how can I communicate with my people who are in their home? And I mean, they hadn't even introduced uh, their, their leadership or church culture to virtual tools. Or, and mm-hmm. so all of a sudden, we're forced into these uh, modes of reaction. You know, we're reacting to this. And, and even as we, if we're not careful, we can begin to bury our minds in the media. And we're all, so what happens is we're always, we feel the pressure to react to, you know, we react to this, you know, social justice cause, or we react to this thing that happened in our city, or we're reacting to this pandemic or this war, which again, I'm not saying uh, that those are not worthy things that we need to address or uh, speak to or needs that we need to serve, but mission preceded the chaos. Yeah. So the the truth is we should have been doing all of this before, but it's in the areas that we were most vulnerable or least engaged or uh, most exposed that crisis, when it shows up, it exposes that. And so I think for me personally, and many people I've been fortunate to talk to in the past couple of years, 
you know, COVID especially and the frustrations that come with that have forced some, some good conversation because here's my feeling. Uh, yes, there are minor adjustments that we'll have to make as chaos comes. But it, if we follow the patterns given, both as Israel was conquering the promised land in the Old Testament, and as the book of Acts is being multiplied in the New Testament, if we fully follow the patterns of ministry that are laid out in those two places, there's no crisis, there's no circumstance, there's no chaos that can keep us from being effective. But Amen. that requires we be a, a people of action and not reaction. We can't wait for a pandemic to, to, to show us the necessity of having a home-focused ministry. Yeah, we should, we should have already been doing mm. that uh, based upon the pattern of the New Testament. And now my concern two years into this is conversations that, that seem to be a year ago saying, man, we really need this as as the restrictions have eased and the sense of normal has is returning back to normal. It's like those, those conversations go back on the shelf. Yeah. That concerns me. Cause I just think, well, what's God going to have to do next time to make us see the reality mm. of this. So yeah, we've got to be people of action. That's right. And I just last week I had, uh, I was able to talk with pastor Timothy Lee from, from the church in Singapore, Tabernacle of joy. And, it was funny. I was reminiscing with them because we were with them in 2019. They're, they were launching this church management software called Axe. And uh, mm -hmm. we, were, we were with them. And I don't know if, if you've ever met Pastor Timothy, but he just goes and goes and goes and, and he's full of ideas and, and he's constantly sharing and so on. And he was talking to us about their care group ministry that they have in Singapore. And they had set up years ago where they have groups of four and five and their entire church is made up of what they call care groups. And it's these groups of wow. four and five individuals. So when the lockdowns hit, they were fully prepared. They were fully ready to transition into that. And, you know, they weren't losing people because they had this already set up. It just, it was amazing talking to him about that and, and understanding that it, he was following, as you said, the plan that was there in the book of Acts. And mm -hmm. I also thought about when you're talking about that, how that it took, it, it just brought to my memory, you know, the, the church was in Jerusalem and it took chaos and, and an attack on the church to force the church to react. But mm -hmm. obviously they went into action and they didn't look back. They didn't come back to Jerusalem, but they went out and they spread all throughout the world. And, and we can see that yeah, chaos can be an accelerator. It can be a positive depending on how we, mm -hmm. we view it and how we react to it. Right. Right. Yeah. I first heard uh, Pastor Jerry Dean from Bossier City uh, make this statement. He preaches a message on a concept he calls redemptive lift. And I, I have used that, that element since hearing him talk about it. But I think anything you surrender to God has redemptive value. And so you can take a pan, you can take a pandemic and all the chaos and the frustration that comes with it and the concern it puts on a church and its leadership. But if you give that to God, there's a redemptive value there when he can take, you know, we say what the enemy meant for evil, evil. Yeah. you know, God turned it for good. That's redemptive lift. That's mm -hmm. God saying, you know, what the enemy put on you to put you down, if you give it to me, I can redeem it and it can become a lift to you. And so to me, so much of, 
of the past two years has been chaos, has been frustration. But personally, I have felt I have felt the Lord teach me a lot through it. And so yeah. for that, I'm grateful. Amen. Well, again, thank you for your time today, for coming on the podcast. Uh, I wanted to finish off by giving you an opportunity, finishing up our time together by sharing with us what is the ultimate response that we should have as individuals? What is the response that we should have to a world that is in chaos? What should that be? I think the ultimate response is Jesus. He is the answer. Whether we are talking about a global pandemic, a world war, a marriage in crisis, a backslidden child, a drug addict, an alcoholic, Jesus is the answer. Mm. And as we all consider the reality that each of us has probably asked God some questions in the past couple of years, we need to be aware that everybody is asking questions right now. Your coworkers are asking questions. Your classmates are asking questions. Everybody is asking questions. And I think this is why the scripture admonishes us that we have to be ready in season and out, or if I could say it this way, be ready when there's no chaos and when there is chaos. So no matter the time, no matter the circumstance, like 1 Peter 3.15 says, that we have to be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And so as the church, our responsibility is not to ask the question, but to provide the answer. Mm. And for me, and I think what the Lord was showing Job was, if you really understand who I am, if you really know me, both in the power of my resurrection and in the fellowship of my suffering, it is possible for you to live through any circumstance and be untouched by its reality. You can live with such confidence in who God is, his love for you, his care for you, that when everybody else is asking questions, you can be the one that has an answer. You can be the one that is able to rise just like Peter did on the day of Pentecost. When the question was asked, what meaneth this? Peter stands up and gives the answer. And in a day when I would say that the Holy Ghost is breaking the yoke off of nations and cities and families and hearts, freeing them from the bondage of the present world, causing them to look and wonder and ask, what's our responsibility? Our responsibility is to make sure that we are walking with God, not contributing to the questioning community, but that we are giving an answer to every person that asks and letting them know who our hope is in and why we have a reason to have it. And I think if we will do that, here's what we'll find is that some of our greatest frustrations and the things that used to give us great fear are actually open doors to some of the greatest revivals and harvests that we've ever seen. We're not the one to be asking questions. We are the one to give the answer.